Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jonathan Rees about his new book, The Chemistry of Fear, Harvey Wiley's Fight for Pure Food. A fascinating examination of the controversial work of Harvey Wiley, the founder of the pure food movement and an early crusader against the use of additives and preservatives in food. Though trained as a medical doctor, chemist Harvey Wiley spent most of his professional life advocating for pure food, food free of both adulterants and preservatives exploring in detail the battles of Wiley picked over the way various foods and drinks were made and marketed. The chemistry of fear touches upon every stage of his career as a pure food advocate. This engaging book will interest anyone who's curious about the pitfalls that eaters faced at the turn of the 20th century. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of uh, the global pandemic, so hopefully we're starting to see maybe a bit of a glimpse of the end of it. I was wondering if we could start by you reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience. Oh, that's an an interesting question. Um, I will say for this work, it's affected me greatly because there was a one-year um, publication delay of this book because of the pandemic. There just weren't enough people in the press to, for lack of a better word, process it. So everything came through a little more slowly. Uh, even apart from that, um, I had finished this actually a very long time ago. It went through a lot of peer review. So it's been fun talking about the book again because it gets to gets me remembering things that I I saw in the library a long time ago. I've been working on another book um, during lockdown uh, using a lot of online sources, uh, and there are some really great ones available now, but but that's for another podcast, I guess, because we're talking about Harvey Wiley today. And you yourself, uh, have you picked up some new habits? Have I picked up some new habits? I get very productive when Mm. the world is um, going to heck. It's my way of coping. So I I write probably, I don't know better, but I certainly write more. Um, It becomes a way for me to forget about the outside. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, um, I teach uh, American history at Colorado State University, Pueblo. Um, my PhD is uh, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I started studying uh, labor history in graduate school. Labor history turned out to be tied to technology. And um, I got interested in technology right after I, I finished my dissertation. Uh, I started studying refrigeration because it was a technology that hadn't been really covered very well. Um, I've written three books on the history of refrigeration in the Amer- in America and the world. Um, and then um, from there, I picked up Wiley. Wiley showed up in um, my refrigeration research, and I got very interested in him, uh, just wondering what kind of person would say such strange things, and uh, found out he had papers at the Library of Congress and turned that into a full biography. And during this time, uh, do you teach remotely? Um, it's a mixture. Uh, mm-hmm. We are sort of back, sort of not. Um, I've always taught my U.S. history survey course asynchronous online. Um, I think I'm pretty good at that. And, you know, there's a lot of writing in that. I sort of teach it like I'm an English professor. Um, the upper level courses have gone back um, sort of half time. Uh, we're doing the discussions online. 
uh, and the lectures uh, with me in person. So I am on campus twice a week, uh, masked up uh, and you know hoping for the best. Um, but then the other three days, um, I'm still mostly at home. So you studied labor history and uh, it's I not did very- originally, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't sound very popular subject, but it's so interesting. So I was wondering how, uh, uh, sort of what uh, mentors have you um, came up, come across during your time, during your career? And maybe you have some advice for our young career researchers who might be interested in topics like this, but I'm not really sure. Um, I think that the best advice, and it's not even so much topic specific, but the thing I think I've learned doing all the writing I have is to edit myself very, very hard. Um, which means that you have to sort of let your writing sit for a while so that you can look at it as if you were a different person. Um, so you know, the problem with my early work was that most of what I produced was terrible. <laughs> um, but but if, you, if you learn to edit yourself, you can sort of get that down to the good stuff. And I, it used to take editors, you know, outside editors for me to get rid of the stuff that I was attached to. Um, that probably shouldn't be there, even if it seems kind of cool to me. And now I can edit myself very hard. So I can write a lot of stuff and then, for lack of a better word, tighten it over a period of a few months so that by the time I'm done with it, it I'm pretty sure it's very good. Um, you know, it's, I, I sort of think of it as the first stuff is awful. The second stuff is awful. The third stuff is awful. But, you know, about five or six awfuls, it starts to get good. Um, but rather than send it out way too early, I just wait until I can see the awful myself. And by the time I'm done with it, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And it doesn't get changed very much. That's really helpful insight into the writing. So your book, as you mentioned, is about Harvey Wiley. So can you tell us what exactly is it about? Well, Harvey Wiley was the head of what would eventually be known as the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. Um, he uh, is sort of in charge of determining what foods should be allowed into the food supply. Uh, he works for the, the Federal Department of Agriculture, and he becomes an important figure behind the passage of the very famous Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Uh, his whole life turns out to be much more interesting than just that one law, though. Uh, so I follow him from, you know, his early life in Indiana in the mid-19th century um, until his death in the early 1930s. And what I've tried to do is sort of give something of an intellectual biography about his ideas about food. And I think those ideas really do resonate down to the present day. And what drew you to Harvey Wiley right in the beginning? So you wrote the whole book about it. So I was was doing material on refrigeration. Um, and Harvey Wiley, from his position in the government, uh, decided that cold storage was a terrible thing in around 1907. Um, and, you know, cold storage is a wonderful thing. Cold storage keeps perishable food fresh and allows us to have more of it. And because we have more of it, um, because we have more of it, the, the prices are cheaper. And I, I couldn't understand how somebody who's supposed to be this great progressive could come out against cold storage. Um, and the answer was that he didn't understand it very well. And eventually mm -hmm. he changed his mind. Uh, and that was sort of the, the first wily flip-flop I ever encountered but he did a lot of that over his career. And I think um, his, his problems and, and some of his successes, sometimes, sometimes his first inclination was correct, uh, really tell us a lot about food then and about food now. So who exactly was Harvey Wiley in the beginning at least? Well, he was a, a chemist um, and a medical doctor he um, uh, comes from Indiana. He was one of the first nine professors at Purdue University when it formed. A very small school, Purdue, when it formed. Only nine professors. And he had both um, physics and chemistry. He was the whole department in both areas. He did that for about 10 years. 
uh, before he left Purdue in order to join government, uh, where he was a faceless bureaucrat for about 30 years uh, until he started um, conducting experiments on human subjects right after the turn of the 20th century. They got enormous amounts of attention. He would feed the human subjects uh, rather large doses of common food additives and see how they felt afterwards. And they never felt particularly good, <laughs> which is why <laughs> the subject came to be known as the Poison Squad. And that experiment made him famous. Um, and if you know Harvey Wiley, that's, you probably know him from that experiment and the fact that that experiment led to the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 in some ways. It led Wiley to lobby for it, and his lobbying was very important in the final passage of that law. But he was also in charge of um, enforcing that act. And in the um, sort of the, the, the big fight over how to enforce it, it crosses all sorts of different food-related industries, everything from ketchup to sugar to um, uh, Coca-Cola, whiskey. Uh, it, it's really a fun subject when you get to write about all sorts of different kinds of foods. And Wiley sort of stuck his nose into all of this because he was interested in particular food additives. Uh, and he fought for what he deemed to be the natural version of all of these things. And it's just really interesting to see what Wiley deems to be natural and what he doesn't. And he gets stricter and stricter about what should be in the food supply as time goes on, while America gets more and more lenient. And I think there's a, I thought there was an interesting story there. And that's what I've tried to tell. So what does it mean to have pure food from Harvey Wiley's point of view? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could do the next 50 minutes on that. It's it's a very hard thing. I, I think I'm going to start with, I think, one of the last things I write in the book, because I think that's sort of the immediate answer to that question. And then maybe we can unpack it in terms of some particular foods after that. Um, but pure food is pure food is a starting point for the discussion of what should belong into your food not the ending point. In other mm. words, if I say I want pure food, you know, the people who are opposed to my conception of pure food will also say that they want pure food. So if you say that you want pure food, um, it, it doesn't really mean anything because it's, it's such a relative term. How you define it depends on who you are, how, how you define it depends on the level of risk that you're willing to accept when you're eating. Um, how you define it depends on how much money you have. Um, how you define it depends on how much you know about science. How you define it depends on you know, what year in American history you happen to be asking that question. So we think the Pure Food and Drug Act is just this great thing, and it solved all these sorts of problems. And it certainly did solve a few, uh, but it created lots of other problems and gets amended a bunch of times afterwards because... America's definition of what pure food means changes. So um, if we look into the science a little bit, so what precisely are additives and preservatives? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. boy, boy. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. More. Again, this is it depends. <laughs> um, but I, I will say this. Um, in the early 1880s, there is a, a series of additives that get made from coal tar of all things. Um, mm. I think that technology starts in Germany and spreads to the United States rather quickly. And those get used as preservatives for food for the first time in the late 19th century. And refrigeration is not particularly effective as a form of food preservation uh, for most people at that time. And, and besides, it's not so much a personal thing, it's a manufacturing thing. Uh, to increase, to use a modern term, to increase shelf life. Um, and there are uh, just, there are just a, a whole slew of them, uh, all of which, in fact, I don't cover all of them. I cover the ones that Wiley was most concerned about, uh, but they include things like uh, sodium benzoate. Um, uh, borax is another one, although that's not a coal tar uh, derivative. Uh, and they become a, a a big a big issue in the United States 
um, because people are worried about what's in their food. I mean, I, I like to think of it as sort of a, a, a modernization thing that when Wiley is born, you know, he lives in a farm in Indiana and most of the food you get comes from either the farm itself or from people you know down the street. Uh, by 1880 and certainly by 1900, so much of what you eat is is produced uh, in other places, some, a, lot, a lot of the time in other countries, and you can't be 100% certain what's in it because there's no federal regulation yet. And so it becomes a matter of trust. And Wiley is uh, very risk averse, and he helps stoke mistrust among American people, among the American people. And they should be mistrustful. Uh, the question then becomes how mistrustful should they be? And that's where all these different food fights, he picks all these different food fights with different industries, depending on the industry. You know, he's not right all the time. He's not wrong all the time. Um, but, but it's just, it's, it's interesting to me to see those fights develop um, in different industries over time, both around legislation but it's not exclusively a matter of federal regulation. Um, it's just a matter of what consumers are willing to tolerate. And Wiley helps uh, determine that question over the course of his lifetime. So what is the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906? So the Pure Food and Drug Act is, is really the first important legislation of the American progressive era. Um, it is a law that allows the United States to certainly regulate, in some cases ban, any additive um, or preservative in food that it deems to be harmful, um, whether it does, you know, whether it's going to hurt people's health, uh, both in the short run and the long run. And Harvey Wiley is the man in charge of determining which additives are unhealthful. But he's not the man in charge of actually enforcing the law. So a lot of the regulation of the Pure Food and Drug Act is sort of voluntary. People, you know, ask, oh, I, I'm, in fact, I forgot an important part of it. Um, it also regulates how food is, is marketed, what you can say about that food. So a lot of manufacturers put in their advertising claims and ask whether this is okay. And uh, Wiley and other people in the Department of Agriculture say that's all right. And then Wiley also tries to get a lot of stuff banned, um, a lot of it unsuccessfully or and sometimes renamed. Um, so it's, wow, I'm unpacking this whole book here just by talking. Um, there's a, a really important distinction between uh, food claims that are misleading and food additives that are harmful. Mm. Um, food adulteration is the term for both those things. Things you add to food, food is adulterated. And some adulteration is inevitable, like you will put in a preservative, something's going to rot. Hopefully that preservative will be um, uh, will be OK. Uh, Wiley, in his early career, is more concerned about deception and food adulteration, uh, marketing things, um, you know, like snake oil um, potions that are supposed to cure diseases. Uh, and he does have some role in, in drugs as well. I have a chapter in that. Um, but over time, because most people are okay being consuming adulterated food that doesn't harm them, he increasingly argues that more food is harmful, that it will actually kill you, whether the evidence for that is good or not. And in that case, uh, he gets shot down uh, often because a lot of people are willing to tolerate more risk than Harvey Wiley was. What ways, uh, uh, in which ways did he establish whether additives or preservatives were harmful or benign? He is a chemist. Um, mm -hmm. So first he is using the tools of chemistry to look at the ingredients that are not listed on the label. In fact, no ingredients are listed on the label. A good example of that is honey. Um, Wiley concluded that Honey with water in it is adulterated, which is sometimes true, but it's also sometimes not true, um, which is uh, an interesting problem all by itself. Uh, and then after the poison squad experiments, he does, well, he does a whole series of, he does seven years worth, maybe it's six years, six years worth of um, poison squad experiments. So he just gets different 
uh, groups of clerks from the Department of Agriculture and keeps feeding them additives and sees what happens. And those experiments become his most important um, legacy, both towards the passage of the act and for attracting attention for his beliefs about food. So can you describe uh, how he conducted these poison squad experiments? Because it does sound oh, yeah. like a big ethical faux pas. It, well, it wasn't at the time. Uh, <laughs> it probably should have been. Um, what, what he does is uh, he has uh, a bunch of clerks from the Department of Agriculture, has them living in the basement of the building, and they agree in advance for the period of the experiment to eat nothing but food prepared by Wiley. And Wiley's chefs uh, slip large amounts of food additives and preservatives into their food. You know, so uh, at first, um, at first you slip it into the butter and then everybody just starts avoiding butter because they can taste it. So by the, you know, a few months into these experiments, they have to take the additives in pill form um, and they consume it. And Wiley just simply uh, ca catalogs their symptoms and uh, measures what goes in uh, in terms of what they're eating and, you know, what goes out the other end. Um and uh, tries to uh, determine whether these um, additives are safe or not on that basis. One of the interesting things about this book is because so many of those additives are still used, you can see what, you know, experiments that went decades later, um, went on decades later, how they were, how they were determined to be safe or not. And usually Wiley's poison squad experiments turn out to be just terribly, terribly wrong. Lots of stuff we consume today while he thought was poisonous. This is fascinating how one person had so much prominence in in this field. He did. He absolutely did. Uh, he was very good with newspaper men. So um, he would give interviews on a regular basis. He would appear in papers all over the country and espouse his ideas. So what noteworthy food items came under Harvey Wiley's scrutiny? Um, I, an excellent question. One I could go on for a long time. Um, I'll, I'll name the ones that just you know, probably have the greatest prominence. Um, Coca-Cola was one. Uh, he thought that caffeine was an adulterant. So he, he uh, convinced the Department of Justice to sue the Coca-Cola company. Uh, he lost. Um, whiskey is another. Um, Wiley was a fan of what we now consider to be straight Kentucky whiskey and whiskey is hard for me because I actually don't drink this stuff. So I had to do a lot of work on this in order to get it right. Um, he thought that other forms of whiskey uh, were um, being deceptive because they weren't the kind that he liked the most. Mm -hmm. And there was just a huge controversy about that running across two presidential administrations as to exactly how to define whiskey. Um, What's another good one? Oh, Wiley is the father of the American sugar beet uh, industry, which I thought was very interesting. I did not expect to find that. That's not so much an adulteration thing, um, but he spent much of his early career figuring out how to grow sugar beets successfully in the United States. And then later he, he got very upset because Americans were consuming too much sugar in their diets, uh, which is something that was you know true in 1920 and still true today one of Wiley's, uh, you know, more uh, uh, noteworthy positions in that it holds up better, uh, but uh, not something he held early in his career when he was working on sugar beets. So he is, for me, it's just as lovely uh, to just sort of dive into these huge range of different foods, figure out the sort of the lay of the land of the industry, figure out Wiley's position, figure out the other position. And I won't so much say who's right, um, but just see how the science works out over time and how American consumption patterns work out over time um, and how Wiley influenced them. So has the Pure Food and Drug Act laid foundations for the uh, current Food and Drug Administration? Yes, um, the Pure Food and Drug Act um, absolutely does. Uh, there are well, the, the, the current FDA comes from 1930 is when that organization is formed. 
uh, but it is is basically just broken off the Department of Agriculture and renamed uh, Wiley um, Wiley's uh, division of chemistry inside the USDA is the forerunner of the FDA. Um, so Wiley was not head of the FDA, but he's head of uh, what would eventually be known as, as the FDA. It's the same uh, division. And the Pure Food and Drug Act is strengthened twice over the course of the 20th century um, so that it's more effective. Um, that's a little bit of a generalization. In some ways, it's less effective, but uh, it, you know, the law changes over time. Um, but I think what's important to note is that the, the Pure Food and Drug Act, as important as it is, is a, a piece of compromise legislation. Uh, it is something where the food interests and the progressive reformers get together and they come up with this compromise. And Wiley just tries to to make it go uh, further than the framers of that act intended. And that's why he, he gets into a lot of fights between its implementation in 1907 and 1912, when he finally was, uh, resigns from the Department of Agriculture and uh, joins the magazine Good Housekeeping. So he spends a lot of time on enforcement. And the bulk of my book, I think, is, is on the enforcement period uh, for various fights that Wiley had picked. And um, I think that's just very, very interesting, uh, looking at those different, those different struggles. So presumably Harvey Wiley did not please everyone. So what no. would be your main criticism of uh, criticisms of his work? Um, the main criticism of his work is that, well, I think it's that he's gone well beyond the bounds of the law that he helped write, mm. um, that he's trying to do things that were never intended. Um, there's also some really strong criticism of his science from other scientists. Uh, the poison squad experiments are not popular with scientists, even if they attract an enormous amount of attention. And of course, they're just simply people who represent industries who don't want to be regulated, uh, who have uh, many problems with Wiley because he wants to regulate just about everything. Wiley's conception of risk is that anything chemical and unnatural should be kept out of the food supply. And there are lots of things that are certainly chemicals and many people would find unnatural uh, that make whole industries possible. And the people who support those industries are just against it. So if we reflect a little bit more on a wider society, so how has Absolutely. his work and ideas uh, shape and also were shaped by the society, society, also the economy, and also the politics? Oh, I, I think that's a that's really a terrific question. Um, his wider significance is with the public. And maybe I should back up for a bit. Um, and just, I'm going to do a very, very quick version of the historiography here, because this is not the first biography of Wiley, but all the other Wiley biographies simply assume that his historical significance comes out of the Pure Food and Drug Act. And there's a story that Wiley tells at his end of his life of how he wanted to make it stronger and all the terrible interests stopped him from doing that. And isn't that a shame? Um, and I, I didn't want to tell that story. One, because it's done. Two, I don't think it's entirely correct. Uh, for me, the story of Wiley is that Wiley's influence is not so much in the law, but in the way that foods are manufactured and marketed. Uh, so just to name Coca-Cola, for instance, the suit that he gets the Department of Justice to file against Coca-Cola fails in the short term. And Coca-Cola um, remains in business, obviously, until this day. But in response to pressure from the government, uh, Coca-Cola changes the way it's marketed uh, for decades, it stops marketing to children, uh, which I thought was very interesting. And it cuts the amount of caffeine in its uh, standard formula by a significant amount because of the pressure that Wiley brought. So you know, that's Wiley. That's Wiley's legacy. Uh, just to name another food I haven't think I've talked about yet, um, ketchup. Ketchup used to be sort of brown 
Um, it was uh, generally made with bad tomatoes and full with vinegar because it's a way that you could use those bad tomatoes and you wouldn't tell what it could look like. Uh, Wiley convinces uh, ketchup companies to change their formula so that um, they have redder ketchup, uh, better tomatoes, redder ketchup, and oddly enough, more sugar in it than it would have been otherwise. Um, the vinegar having been something of a stabilizer. Um, so you know, the nature of modern ketchup is is Wiley's work. Uh, that's that's another one. Um, he is single handedly. Now, maybe that's a little strong, but he is certainly the most important force in American life campaigning against the use of whiskey as medicine, which is not something I expected to find when I started looking at his life. Uh, and that may be one of his more important legacies. That's certainly correct. We don't want you know lots of people drinking straight alcohol, thinking it's going to cure them of anything. Um, but Wiley does that both as a government um, employee and after he ends his government service, just as a doctor lobbying doctors' organizations, he manages to to get that taken. It's just simply no longer becomes socially acceptable. And Wiley is campaigning very loudly for that. Certainly, one of the things where he's correct. So I, I I think he's a very important figure. I just I just didn't want to tell that that sort of traditional story. Um, he is also you were talking about sort of the social context for his ideas. I think he is more of a thought leader than a follower when it comes to pure food. Um, that, in essence, that before Wiley, we didn't really think that the food that we ate could kill us. And after Wiley, we could. And that has obviously its good points and its bad points because the food that we eat can kill us in certain circumstances. But at the same time, he's so committed to making people afraid of what they eat, that I think a lot of people are too afraid of what they eat. Uh, and that's also part of Wiley's legacy, because he was ready to say that everything is unhealthy, even if most people would deem the risk associated with a particular food to be acceptable. So as you mentioned, he had well, a few strange relationships uh, with the industry, industries, different industries. What about consumers? How did they uh, responded to his ideas? Well, that's where the newspaper men come in. Um, Wiley was one of the most famous people in America. When he, after the, after the Poison Squad experiments, he conducted regular interviews with national reporters who would come into his office. He spent also an enormous amount of time taking the train out to places all over the country uh, to inspect uh, agricultural department facilities, and to give speeches. After he retires, he goes on the Chautauqua circuit, uh, becomes one of the most important speakers there, all talking about pure food. So he has a tremendous influence on consumers uh, because he's talking to them directly, well, one-on-one, -on -one and or sometimes just uh, through the newspapers. And so if you, you know, run the word Dr. Wiley into a newspaper search engine, between 1900 and 1920, you know, you'll see lots of people don't even bother to give his first name because everybody knew who Dr. Wiley was. Very famous figure. Um, his good housekeeping position is, is is also pretty important for that. He takes letters, answers letters. Uh, very very popular. They they paid him twice as much money uh, to work at good housekeeping as they did uh, to be in a high official in the government. Uh, he was that important a figure at the time. And so his ideas become a lot of Americans' ideas because they read it or it's repeated back to them or they're just interested in what Wiley thinks. Uh, there were efforts to fire him while he was still in government, and those efforts failed in large part because uh, presidents, uh, presidents Roosevelt and Taft recognized that Wiley had a huge popular following and that if he was fired, then they would lose votes. So as your book is called The Chemistry of Fear, so do you think yes. it was intentional of him to adopt this way of swaying public opinion? And why do you think he was so uh, effective? Uh, I think that it was intentional, uh, that he loved public attention, uh, that he liked being talked about as well as 
uh, having the ability to talk to as many people as possible. And fear was the greatest way to attract that attention. However, you know, sometimes the fear is justified, but sometimes the fear is not justified. And that's why I, I think of him as a much more, uh, oh, what's the right word? Neutral is not the right word. You know, a, a good side, bad side kind of figure rather than a hero or a villain. I mean, I'm happy he was around. I'm glad he uh, created some of the changes that he created, but I'm not sure all the things that he convinced people to think were correct or healthy for most Americans. So from your perspective, what kind of approaches could have been better than having one person like him who, as you say, having one good side, bad side, and half the time his experiments were not uh, rightly done? (laughs) That's pretty easy. Um, If Wiley had been more respectful of the way the original Pure Food and Drug Act had been written, um, I think the results probably would have been better. Uh, Wiley was convinced it failed at the end of his life, and I don't think that's even remotely true. Um, Although the Pure Food and Drug Act is not the strongest piece of progressive legislation ever written, um, it was really the the first time that a lot of uh, food manufacturers were willing to submit to any kind of regulation, and many of them did it willingly. And so if you had more of a dialogue in the enforcement mechanism, as was written into that legislation, instead of one guy trying to, to have a crusade, I think you would have gotten better, more change and better change. Um, and you could have done it, could have done it differently. The problem is that the way that regulation works, it, it, most of the public, even then, didn't pay any attention to it. So, you know, you could have convinced, well, in fact, that's a, a really good example, right? Um, sodium benzoate was, uh, an important fight that Wiley picked. And most of that goes into his battle against saccharin, um, which is an artificial sweetener, um, a very early artificial sweetener. Um, interestingly enough, I think by the year 2000, the U.S. government determines it's okay to consume saccharin, but they're just better artificial sweeteners, so almost nobody uses it anymore. Um, ketchup is is also a sodium benzoate question, uh, but it gets very little attention in the public. And because of that, you know, Wiley manages to do his work to create better ketchup relatively quietly um, because he's just engaged in that other sodium benzoate fight and a bunch of other fights at the same time. Um, a more effective bureaucrat could have done all of those fights less publicly. And I think it might have been more effective. But Wiley occasionally operated that way as well. So how does his legacy feed into the contemporary food system? Because uh, nowadays food systems are so complex, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, I think there is a knee-jerk reaction against anything that is not deemed natural. Natural and pure are almost synonyms today, right? If something's natural, then it's okay. But of course, many things that are natural are not okay if they're in the wrong context. Um, so Wiley's you know, main legacy is, I think, to, to, to make people nervous about anything they don't understand. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, I mean, it goes to the whole nature of, of adulteration. Um, when you put something in food, you do it for many reasons. Um, take a preservative, right? If you put a preservative in food, uh, it'll last longer. If it lasts longer, less will be wasted. If less is wasted, the supply will be greater, the price will be lower. And so having a preservative you know, makes food available, both in terms of you know, distance, you can ship it longer, you can keep it longer, and in terms of price, because it increases the supply. Uh, but if you think of it solely in terms of this one unnatural food additive, you might have an entirely different idea. But consumers eventually tend to, you know, vote with their pocketbooks and buy the things that they that they want, and the things that you know, to them taste good, whether they deem it to be natural or not. 
I'm not saying that I'm in favor of all artificial food. I'm just saying it's much more complicated than Wiley was ever willing to admit. There are questions of price. There are questions of convenience. Uh, there are questions of you know acceptable risk. Um, I, I always think of peanuts. You know, something that's emerged only very recently as something that a lot of people are very nervous about because of of allergies. Uh, Wiley thought that the food supply should protect even the very weakest among us. So anybody who's got a problem with a particular additive, that they should, it, that thing should not be sold if it will affect any person badly. You know, under you know Wiley's ideas, you know, peanuts would be just impossible for anyone to consume. Um, and I don't think that's the right that's the right solution. The solution is is somewhere in that sort of complicated mediated middle ground uh, that Wiley was just never willing to, to uh, well, only occasionally willing to occupy. So has the distrust in preservatives and additives been increasing over the decades? Um, well, it, it certainly has. Um, it's a little beyond me, um, simply because with a biography, I, I tend to 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 just sort of not do much past his death in 1930. Um, I will say this though, um, which I think is important to know, Wiley is very well known in sort of, I don't mean this derogatory, let's try this a little differently. Um, the counterculture in the 1960s uh, resurrects Wiley's work and makes it very popular again, at least among people who are concerned about what they're eating. And because of that, uh, his legacy has become more, more gotten more attention recently than it had for decades after his death. And I, I find that very interesting. Um, you know, he becomes sort of a friend of the counterculture because they share a lot of his fears and you know, sometimes they duplicate them exactly. And um, that nervousness um, loses it loses sort of the, no, it doesn't lose it. It, it. it becomes political again. And Wiley was a Republican um, who became a Democrat <laughs> um, for a little while. Uh, so it's not so much a, a politics thing. Uh, it's just a, it's just a, it's a regulatory thing. And again, a lot of that fear transcends politics today as well. And if we circle back to the pure food uh, terminology, do you think it's yeah. been uh, repurposed and reinvented now? And as you say, it starts getting equated with being natural. I, I do. I do. Um, you know, weirdly enough, when you when you write about food history, you have this decision to make um, as to how much you're going to do on the present and how you're going to do it in the present. Um, what I mean is how you're going to incorporate the present into your text. And I ended up making a deliberate decision, I think because I wanted to cover more of the food fights that Wiley was involved in, to migrate all of my direct writing about the present out of this book into an entirely different book. So I know I was talking about the chemistry of fear, but in 2020, um, I published a book with Reaction Press in Great Britain. Uh, which is called Food Adulteration and Food Fraud, where I, I don't think Wiley comes up once, or I think I wrote about him like in the footnotes once. Um, but the whole book was inspired by Harvey Wiley because when you cover his ideas over time and you try to cover them in depth and you take them very seriously like I did, you realize just how incredibly confusing questions of what things are natural and what things are pure really are. And so all of this stuff resonates to me. Um, I, I'll give you one just sort of modern example I wrote about in that 2020 book, um, which is vanilla. Um, vanilla is the second most expensive uh, spice on earth. Um, and almost everything that is vanilla anything is made with fake vanilla, artificial vanilla. There is no question in my mind that if Harvey Wiley was around, 
he would slam vanilla ice cream and vanilla everything else as fake, as deceptive, as a way to trick people into thinking they're they're consuming vanilla when they're not. But it's also no question in my mind, particularly as a fan of vanilla, that um, <laughs> that I would continue buying it anyway because I like the taste of vanilla, whether or not the vanilla itself is natural. And so Wiley's outdatedness sometimes, when you, you sort of look below the surface, is, is just very, very obvious. But then in, in other areas, he was absolutely prophetic. Uh, Wiley was one of the first uh, major scientific figures um, to argue that cigarette smoking was hazardous to your health. And that was about 1920. I mean, he's just way ahead of the curve there. Um, and, you know, good for him on that one. And so when you carry these ideas forward, it, it just gets, it gets very confusing. Um, but, the, but it remains very resonant, whether Wiley was right or whether he was wrong. So what discoveries about Wiley, society, or even yourself along your journey to writing your book, The Chemistry of Fear, surprised you the most? Uh, I would say it would be the fact that Wiley was a really weird guy. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, truly, genuinely weird. And I don't come out and say this in the book, like, I think Wiley is weird. I just describe some of his very weird ideas. Of, about science, um, and of course, I need an example. Um, Wiley believed that if you drove around in an open car, it would prevent you from being bald. And he said that his hair grew back because he drove around in an open car all the time, but it never grew back, and you can see pictures from him. He's bald basically his whole adult life. Um, and I just, it's very hard to rectify that or to imagine what the heck he was thinking because it's such a weird idea. Um, during World War I, he recommended that Americans eat their pet cats and dogs in order to save food for the war effort. Um, just a very strange thing. Um, I mean, I, my best guess is that he just says what comes to his mind because he knows it's going to attract attention. And if he keeps saying things, people will keep asking him questions. Um, but if he believed any of this, um, you know, I... I I would just really, I, 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 it's hard for me to figure out whether he believed any of this or not. And it's, I, I can't, I certainly have no evidence that he thought he was lying. Um, but it's just, it's just hard even for a biographer to explain. And I, I actually think that part of the reason that other books about Wiley tend to focus on the Pure Food and Drug Act is that they want to avoid his extremely weird side, or at least the evidence is a little harder to find of his extremely weird side. Because uh, after, you know, a single interview, it tends not to be reprinted and it doesn't come out in any of Wiley's own writings, uh, just from a lot of newspaper interviews. But it also would be quite difficult to reconcile a person being like so weird, as you say, and being in such a prominent position. Yes, yes. Um, I think what's important is that, well, and I do cover this, that if we're talking about training, Wiley was a sugar scientist. Um, so his training um, wasn't even so much in graduate school, but his formal training in chemistry is to sort of examine various uh, sugars under, uh, uh, under um, instruments to determine exactly how much of it uh, is natural and how much of it is artificial. And, you know, he's, he's very good at that. That's how he gets his job at the Department of Agriculture. But as he goes increasingly into subjects further away from his training, his beliefs get weirder and weirder and less likely to be supported by science. When he's going by his gut, it's not always a, an admirable result. That's probably the best explanation. Yeah. So he's an expert on a limited range of things. He's lucky on a bunch of other things, or at least his, his gut tells him the right thing. Uh, and then just a lot of things he is absolutely dead wrong. But even when he's dead wrong, he's very historically significant because people respond to his incorrect opinions uh, as often as they respond to his correct ones. 
And you yourself, do you have a guilty pleasure food? Even the one that might oh, be full boy. of additives yeah. and preservatives. You know, that's that's it's an interesting question. Do I do I, do I stop eating anything because of mm-hmm. studying Harvey Wiley? You know, no. Um, I, I probably I don't think I've ever said this in this context before. I think what really helps is that I'm a vegetarian. And so when I study meat, for instance, which Wiley was deeply invested in, I just it doesn't it's like purely anthropological to me. I'm never going to eat the stuff. I don't really care uh, so much how bad things were. And I can try to look at it in a really disinterested manner. Well, you know, actually, nor I think about it, a lot of the stuff I don't really have very much of. And I think that helps. Uh, I've already said I don't drink whiskey. So that was uh, easy to be the best I can version of objective I could be. Um, that That's certainly another one. My ketchup consumption is pretty limited. Um, I, I've been known to have a Diet Coke every once in a while, but I'm not a, a big Coke drinker. So, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, it's mostly, uh, mostly while he's picking fights over things I don't eat. So it makes it a little easier for me to look at it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Oh, thanks for the question. Um, I've been working on lockdown uh, on a history of the Fulton fish market in New York City. Uh, it has been uh, put under contract by Columbia University Press, uh, and I still have to get through peer review, but I mean, hopefully it will be out by the end of next year. Excellent. I hope you come uh, over here again and uh, tell us all about it. I promise if I am invited, I will absolutely do it. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Um well, the, the book, again, is called The Chemistry of Fear. Uh, it is from Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, so you can get it through their website. Uh, my personal website is called moreorlessbunk.net, which is based on a, a Henry Ford quote. And I have links to buy all of my books uh, on that site. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been a truly fascinating discussion. I appreciate it.